the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show on 93.9 KPDQ Portland and now 8.20 a.m. The Word in Seattle. I'm honored to join the Christian community in Seattle to talk about what's going on here in the Pacific Northwest and all around the country. What the scriptures say about the age we're living in and how we can speak truth in love to a hostile culture. There's a lot to talk about. I'm a native of the Pacific Northwest, and uh, we have a lot in common. So we're going to hit the ground running. I should mention that we're uh, kicking off this partnership today, but I'm going to be on vacation next week. The big uh, the big reveal. The big, <laughs> I'm not even sure what to call it. That'll come the week after next, but I'm I'm um, really glad to have an introduction today and tomorrow before that uh, that week takes place. So Glad to be with you today. Well, let's just uh, take a look at some of the day's headlines. A former top lawman at the Department of Justice called the Atlanta prosecutor's proposed commencement trial date for former President Trump an example of how the proceedings against him are politically designed to upend his surging candidacy. Now, the big debate is, and maybe we can talk about this on another day, is whether or not these charges, and we're talking specifically about Georgia, are merited or if they are politically motivated. Former Acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker keyed into a Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney Fannie Willis announcement of a proposed date of March the 4th to start proceedings against the former president over election-related allegations, which, by the way, would fall one day before the crucial Super Tuesday contests. Now, the dates would, um, wouldn't become official until and unless they're signed off by a judge, but this is what she has asked for. Well, they're now scheduled this, uh, scheduling this first trial on the day before Super Tuesday when 15 states plus American Samoa are going to, uh, to vote. And if you're thinking you can prepare for a trial and visit 15 states in the lead up to Super Tuesday, well, that's going to be virtually impossible. Alabama, Arkansas, Colorado, California, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Vermont and Virginia will all hold their primaries on March the 5th. American Samoa, by the way, is a territory. It's similar to the District of Columbia, about 3,700 miles east of Australia. They'll hold uh, their Democratic caucus on that day. Its uh, Republican caucus is uh, likely will fall sometime in that month, according to officials there anyway some are suggesting this was planned and coordinated to try to prevent donald trump from being strong enough to win the election in november greg jarrett who happens to be a legal analyst for fox news opined that prosecutors like willis are hoping to convict trump or at least sully him sufficiently to enable joe biden to win well there's a lot that could be said about that we'll save that for another day but um Trying to keep up with all of the indictments, the four uh, different venues in which really three, but four different uh, sets of charges that the former president will be facing is going to provide uh, sufficient drama to carry us through perhaps the next, well, year and a half. 
Let's see. A special prosecutor will be chosen to investigate um, Georgia Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, a Republican, in connection with the former president's alleged illegal efforts to overturn the election uh, in that state. Jones, who wasn't listed in the indictment, was one of the 16 so-called fake electors who allegedly falsely claimed Trump won Georgia and tried to conduct a secret meeting at the state capitol in mid-December in an effort to overturn uh, President Biden's victory in the Peach State. Now, three of the 16 electors were indicted on allegations of forgery, false statements, and impersonating a public officer, among other crimes. The lieutenant governor, however, was previously denied wrongdoing, claiming that he and other electors acted only to preserve Trump's chances if the former president won in court. He said in a statement Tuesday that Willis's investigation was a constant media and PR campaign for the sole purpose of furthering her own political career. And he added that she was uh, pursuing the political vendettas of the past when she should have been going after real criminals, end quote. Well, the grand jury left Jones, a former state senator, out of Monday's indictment after the Fulton County Superior Court judge uh, ordered Willis to drop the then-candidate for lieutenant governor from her investigation in uh, July of 2022 because she hosted a fundraiser for Democratic uh, Charlie uh, Bailey, who was running against Jones in the general election. So again, the drama continues. In other news, House conservatives are pretty wary after Speaker Kevin McCarthy suggested Congress could pass a short-term extension of last year's spending priorities to give lawmakers some time to cobble together a deal for fiscal year 2024. The continuing resolution would extend current spending priorities that would that were set under the Democratic-controlled 117th Congress for a certain amount of time. Congress failing to pass any kind of spending agreement by September 30th, they risk sending the government into a partial shutdown. Now, is this a rerun? Haven't we done this before? I've seen this picture. I know how it ends. Not all conservatives are opposed to the idea. One representative, Ken Buck, he's a Republican out of Colorado, another member of the Freedom Caucus. He told uh, Fox News Digital that he thinks a short term continuing resolution ending before the holidays would be appropriate in this situation. He, by the way, is in the minority in the Freedom Caucus. I said he was uh, doubtful McCarthy could keep his promise on the 12 individual spending bills, however, We're struggling as a conference to come together on spending priorities, and it's clear that we're going to need a continuing resolution to be able to negotiate and conference committees with Democrats. Uh, The Democrats haven't passed a single appropriations bill. Uh, We've passed one, he went on to say, and there's just just isn't enough time to get all 12 appropriations bills passed and negotiate with the Senate on the rest of the bills. McCarthy can only afford to lose five votes to pass a bill along party lines from that Freedom Caucus. But a continuing resolution would likely pass with both Republican and Democratic votes, though the chances are significantly slimmer if it includes any of the conservatives' wish list policy items. We'll continue to follow that story as it develops. Meanwhile, House Republicans are pushing the Department of Justice for answers on who gets grant money and how those allocations are decided as some conservatives push to slash the department's funds over charges of politicization, House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan, he sent letters to three Department of Justice offices earlier this week suggesting the administration was stonewalling the committee's efforts to find out how grants are allocated within the Office of the Justice Programs, Office of Violence Against Women, and the Community-Oriented Policing Services. Well, it comes as lawmakers face a pretty tough spending showdown when they return from their home districts in September. So that gives you a little bit of a preview of some of what's happening 
and the days uh, after their vacations are over in the early part of September. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 93.9 KPDQ, Portland, 820 AM, The Word, Seattle. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show. First, we overlook evil. Then we permit evil. Then we legalize evil. Then we promote evil. Then we celebrate evil. Then we... Persecute those who still call it evil. Isaiah 520 says, woe unto them who call evil good and good evil. Coming up later in the program, we're going to talk with attorney John Scruggs. He's with Alliance Defending Freedom. We'll talk about a suit opposing the politically motivated adoption process that was that is currently being uh, considered in the court from a woman here in the state of Oregon. We'll also talk later with John Bursch. He's the vice president of Appellate Advocacy with Alliance Defending Freedom on the D.C. double standard on public messages. Um, when the uh, Black Lives Matter events took place, the uh, the mayor was all over it. But when the pro-lifers wanted a little modest message that said the black lives of uh, children in utero also matter. Well, it was a different story. We'll talk with him about that. And then coming up in our second hour, we'll talk with attorney from Liberty Council on the Fifth Circuit Court, uh, Court of Appeals ruling on chemical abortions, Mifepristone. Um, the court decided, hey, you can't mail this stuff. But there's more to it. We'll talk with Hugh Phillips about that all coming up in the next uh, few segments of today's program. Well, America First Legal, a nonprofit group headed by former Trump policy advisor Stephen Miller, has filed a lawsuit against Washington Governor Jay Inslee to stop the enforcement of a new state law that allows minors to get sex reassignment surgeries without their parents' permission. Well, the uh, conservative group says the Senate bill, you probably know it, 5599, signed by Governor Inslee back in May, creates a dangerous incentive for minors who disagree with their parents on gender-affirming care to run away to a shelter or host home, which, by the way, parents don't need to know about. Senate Bill 5599 allows host homes to house youth without parental permission. Also, the uh, host homes don't need to notify parents about where their kids are or if they're getting medical interventions, if there is a compelling reason not to, which includes a youth seeking protected health services. Now, most kids imagine their parents are going to uh, respond much more violently than many of them do. So this isn't a very reliable measure of what um, constitutes a a home that is not safe for a young person. Well, the protected health care services included gender affirming care, as they call it, which for minors arbitrarily included anything prescribed by doctors to treat dysphoria. The bill said gender affirming treatment can be prescribed to um, two spirits, transgender, non-binary and other gender diverse individuals. The bill states America First Legal alleges that the bill, Senate Bill 599, authorizes the state of Washington to refer a minor for behavioral health services without defining what that entails. In practice, it means that young children who run away from home could be receiving chemical sterilization drugs or even genital mutilation without the consent or knowledge of the parents, the group said in their press release. Because, you know, these days parents can't be trusted to act in the best interest of their own children. I don't remember the document that was circulated uh, telling parents or giving them the option to allow the state to make major decisions about their children. Um, But uh, apparently that's the case. Um, You can't be trusted as a mom or a dad. 
Well, ABC News changed a headline in response to the backlash they received after saying the climate change can't be blamed for the fires in Maui. Perhaps another day we'll go deeper into that. Forest management could have played a significant role there. An anti-woke online marketplace, Public Square or Public SQ, uh, launched as a conservative alternative to Amazon, says it's on its way to turning a profit next year after seeing incredible growth since its nationwide rollout 13 months ago. In public squares, their first earnings call since going public on the New York Stock Exchange last month as PSQ Holdings, Inc., the e-commerce company reported it now has more than 1.4 million consumer members since 65,000 businesses on the platform. I want to check that out, representing growth of 272% and 98% respectively. Well, since December of last year, the company also announced it's on track to turn a profit in 2024. Let's see. A federal judge struck down opposition to President Biden's student loan cancellation scheme. So it's moving forward. The judge on Monday denied a bid by two conservative groups to block the administration from canceling the federal student loan of more than 800,000 people who've been in repayment for more than 20 years. The Cato Institute and Mackinac Center for Public Policy filed suit earlier this month. They said the administration violated federal law by failing to produce the forgiveness policy through the traditional rulemaking process and offer the public the opportunity to comment. Well, the district judge, U.S. District Judge Thomas Ludington of the Eastern District of Michigan, issued an 18-page order dismissing that case, uh, concluding the groups lack the uh, standing to stop one of the administration's latest efforts to alleviate the burden of student loan. Really, it's alleviating the burden, but shifting it on to Taxpayers who many of whom haven't gone to college at all. They made that conscious decision or couldn't afford it. Hmm. Well, the Taliban is celebrating the second year of its Afghanistan takeover. I'm reminded of the challenge the president offered uh, earlier this week. Give me one example of where the United States has failed to do what it said it was going to do. Afghanistan came to mind. Anyway, the Taliban marked the second anniversary of their return to power on Tuesday, celebrating their takeover of Kabul and the establishment of what they said was security throughout the country under an Islamic system. Well, after a lightning offense, as U.S.-led foreign forces were withdrawing after 20 years of uh, inconclusive war, the Taliban entered the capital on the 15th of August as the Afghan security forces set up with years of Western support, equipment, and so on, disintegrated and... uh, U.S.-backed President Ashraf Ghani fled. Now, the Taliban, which is not recognized by most countries around the world, has declared Tuesday a national holiday. The day is full of honor and pride for Afghans, unless you happen to be a woman or a Christian or, you know. Taliban Deputy Spokesperson Bilal Karimi told CNN when the Taliban, a radical Islamic group that had previously ruled Afghanistan in the 90s, took power in 21, It initially presented itself as a more moderate version of its former self, and it kind of started out that way, sort of, even promising that women would be allowed to continue their education up to university. But, of course, it's since cracked down instead, closing secondary schools for girls, banning women from attending university and working at NGOs, including the United Nations. They're restricting their travel without a male chaperone and banning them from public spaces such as parks and gyms. Women can no longer work in most sectors and uh, were dealt yet another blow last month when the Taliban closed all beauty salons across the country. But the United States has never, ever in its entire history, according to the current president, failed to live up to its commitment. How, How many 
Afghans that helped the United States are still trapped there? Are, are there American citizens still trapped there? But never have we. Hmm. Let's see. A judge ruled with Montana youths in their climate change case. The district judge in Montana sided with a group of young people, plaintiffs, who filed a lawsuit against the state alleging that local energy policies violated their rights to a clean and healthful environment, which includes climate as part of the environmental life support system. The case hinged on language in the state constitution that it, which enshrined residents right to a clean and healthy environment for present and future generations. Those are quotes. However, Montana laws uh, some passed as recently as May, constrained local officials from incorporating greenhouse gas emissions and corresponding impacts to the climate in energy project approvals. Well, moving forward, the state that derives a third of its economy from coal uh, will have to adopt a more holistic, environmentally conscious approach to energy policies, according to the ruling. Well, the sweeping win, one of the strongest decisions on climate change ever issued by a court, could energize the environmental movement and usher in a wave of cases aimed at advancing action on climate change, experts predict. And the ruling that invalidates the provision blocking climate considerations also represents a rare victory for climate activists who've tried to use the courts to push back against government policies and industrial activities they say are harming the planet. Now, not every state constitution is so explicit as Montana But this certainly can provide something of a blueprint uh, for moving forward. And in a um, not so surprising uh, headline, a biological male broke the record in a female powerlifting competition in Canada. He identifies as transgender. He set a new powerlifting record in Canada in the women's category. The 40-year-old was competing at um, the Canadian Powerlifting Union's 2023 Western Canadian Championship. This is on Sunday. He competed in the female masters unequipped category. Feminist publication Redux pointed out that um, he previously mocked female athletes before competing against them. I, I the Words fail. I'm just going to leave it at that. Words fail. Up next, we'll talk with uh, John Scruggs, attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom, regarding the suit opposing the politically motivated adoption process denial for one woman right here in Oregon. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. <sighs> The Oregon Department of Human Services denied single mom Jessica Bates her application to adopt siblings from foster care because of her religious beliefs. Well, she's now urging the court to stop politically motivated adoptions or at least the uh, adoption process. Here to tell us more about that is John Scruggs. He is an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom on the suit opposing the politically motivated adoption process here in the state of Oregon, which sadly is being uh, carried out in other parts of the country as well. Mr. Scruggs, thank you so much for joining us. No, thanks so much for having me. Now, there were oral arguments yesterday in this case. Bring us up to speed um, how this began with this mom who just wants to bless kids and, in fact, wants to adopt uh, a pair of siblings, which is uh, you know something that doesn't happen very often uh, here in the state of Oregon. Tell us a bit about this uh, this situation. Yeah, absolutely. And the bottom line of the situation is, you know, we need more families to care yes. for kids and to love kids who are in need. Uh, but Oregon is systematically excluding 
people of faith because of their views on gender identity, sexual ethics, and, and that's just wrong and unconstitutional. But the situation was Jessica, who is a mom of five, she was on our way to work and heard uh, a radio uh, program and felt inspired to adopt and fo- or to foster two more children. So even though she was raising her own five children, she wanted to adopt two more in need. And she went about that process, applied to Oregon, and went through the training. Uh, but in the training, uh, officials told her that you have to be willing to use the wrong pronouns of children to raise pride flags in your own home, to take children to pride parades, uh, to even take children to and undergo dangerous medical procedures to, to attempt to transition them. And Jessica responded and said, look, hey, you know, I will love and, and accept any child into my home, but I can't do something that violates my faith, you know, uh, just like if, on other, every other topic. And Oregon said, well, you can no longer apply to adopt any child. Uh, no matter who it is. And that's what caused the lawsuit. And I I want to highlight that the key part is Oregon is saying that Jessica is effectively unfit to parent any child because they are excluding her from the door, right? They're not saying that Jessica can only adopt children who don't identify as LGBT. They're saying she can't adopt anyone, including someone who shares her own faith, uh, or an infant, or a two, uh, you know, a two-year-old, or even someone who's related, uh, you know, let's say, uh, you know, a, a family relation, can even adopt them. So it's a categorical exclusion uh, f- uh, from Jessica from the system. And by extension, not just Jessica, but any believer who holds to what has been the traditional view of sexuality for millennia. Uh, they are now excluded in the state of Oregon. I appreciated one of the legal counsel, Johannes, um, who uh, wrote that Oregon is abandoning children in favor of a political agenda. It's not as if Oregon has a surplus of parents looking for a limited number of children. There's a desperate need for families who are willing to take these children in. She's been denied based solely on her religious conviction. Her home was not found to be uh, in uh, inappropriate. She was not found to be unfit on any other grounds. Is that a correct characterization? That's absolutely correct. I mean, Jessica is an amazing mom, uh, as evidenced by the fact she's raising her five kids. But that's not or- what Oregon found. Oregon didn't say, "Hey, uh, you, you, you know, you, you did something wrong." They're saying because of her beliefs that she is unfit to parent any child, no matter who it is. So Oregon is uh, imposing an ideological litmus test. Absolutely, absolutely upfront, and it's imposing it on Jessica and on people who share her beliefs, saying that if you don't agree with our political agenda and our viewpoint. Uh, well, guess what? You are an unfit parent, and what that does is it hurts kids. It's hurting these kids who need a loving home. Jessica can provide a loving home. She has a, a bed right now ready uh, to help and love a, a child in need. But Oregon is saying no uh, because simply because of her beliefs. Well, there was a hearing yesterday. What was that hearing for? What happened and what's next? So we filed a lawsuit, and we also filed a motion basically saying we need relief right now for Jessica. Her rights are being violated right now. Uh, She wants to adopt and enter into the system right now uh, and to accept a child, but Oregon is excluding her, and every day her rights are being violated. So we asked the court to remedy that situation immediately, and that's what the hearing was about. And we're hopeful that the court will grant our motion to allow Jessica as the case proceeds, just to start the process of going into the system and applying. So as it stands, she is being penalized for her religious views. 
She's being compelled to speak words that violate her beliefs, and she's being deprived of her equal protection under the law. During this hearing yesterday, were decisions made? Are you waiting for a decision? What what should we expect next? Uh, we are waiting for a decision. No decision was made at the hearing. We hope to get a ruling in the coming months. And just to highlight just how broad the Oregon's policy is, they're basically saying not just that you have to say something you don't believe, not just that you have to take a child, a hypothetical child, to events that violate your beliefs, that you can't even take this child to your own church and can't expose this child to any of your, relig- your religious beliefs on these topics because that is harmful in the eyes of Oregon. And it's not just Oregon is doing this. Uh, states across the country have started this process. It's so important to push back and to stand up for people's freedoms. You know, the state of Oregon is not telling atheists that they have to embrace Christianity in order to adopt a child. Why are they singling out people of faith like this? It's just wrong. Well, as you mentioned, this is a phenomenon that we're seeing all across the country. Uh, it's significant that she has decided, rather than simply shrugging her shoulders and walking away, to confront the state of Oregon and challenge uh, the, the policy that they've imposed here. And it does have the potential to have broad implications. Are you seeing others challenging systems across the, the country as well who are being excluded from the opportunity to serve, to minister to and to raise and love children who desperately need homes? Absolutely. There was a similar lawsuit brought in Washington, one just a few weeks ago in Massachusetts, Uh, uh, another one in New Jersey. These things are popping up all across the country, and it's really a dangerous dangerous agenda uh, because people of faith are being excluded uh, from serving others. And at the end of the day, that hurts the children. Yeah. Uh, that hurts the children who need a loving home. And that's all we're asking for. Yeah. We're not asking to have Jessica matched with a particular child. We're asking simply that she be allowed in the door and then to be matched with a child that fits her, just like every other parent and applicant can do. Uh, so really all we're asking here for is equal treatment under the law. What do you say to a parent um, who is listening or a potential parent who's listening today thinking, I desperately want to help the children in our community, and they're tempted to simply um, give in to what the state of Oregon, for example, is requiring. Okay, I'm going to violate my own convictions. I'm I'm going to uh, affirm um, these things that the state says are necessary in order for me to parent a kid in my state. How important is it for for parents who are willing to take kids in, to adopt, to foster uh, to stand up to the state of Oregon, to the state of Washington, and all across the country? It's so important. Uh, it's vital. I, I would urge people to contact us because the First Amendment does not allow this, and it's such a dangerous principle. I mean, think about what the state's uh, Oregon is saying. The, their logic is essentially because of your religious beliefs, you are not a fit parent. Well, if you extend that logic, that goes not just to adoption, foster. I mean, that goes even further to, to biological children. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if Oregon holds the view that these beliefs are so harmful and dangerous that they imperil children, I mean, take that logic to its conclusion. It is is scary. It is dangerous. It's a principle that we need to push back on. So I would urge people, if they are faced with a situation or even concerned, that they should contact us so we can help protect your rights. What's the best way for our listeners to connect with you if, in fact, they have a situation they'd like to work with you on? I would go to our website, adflegal.org. There's a contact form, uh, and you can fill it out, and we will, we will touch base. But uh, these rights are so important. They're so vital, uh, and especially the children in need. That's who we really need to stand up for because no one, no one else is standing up for them. Uh, and, and you know, we need to match 
parents who are willing and able to love these children uh, to get them access. John Scruggs, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate the work of ADF and appreciate your joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, John Bursch, he's the vice president of appellate advocacy with Alliance Defending Freedom on the uh, D.C. double standard on public messages. And by the way, I did recognize there was a dangling participle just a moment ago. I won't do that again. I, I promise. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, during the summer of 2020, the nation's capital city didn't just allow Black Lives Matter protesters to spray paint public property with their message. D.C. Mayor Bowser, she actively joined the protests. She directed staff to paint words, Black Lives Matter on the street across from the White House, rebranding a section of as rather Black Lives Matter Plaza. Now, lest you think, oh, this is just a white girl. On the black, I'm an African-American woman. I've lived through this. So just give me a minute. The District of Columbia took sides in an active political debate. They joined ranks with a message that rioters proclaimed as they broke glass. They looted stores. They started fires and they put other citizens lives in danger. At least 26 people died in the mayhem. Well, meanwhile, a group of pro-life protesters decided to spread their own related message. They aimed to write black pre-born lives matter. Okay, it doesn't conflict with, it doesn't contradict. Black preborn lives matter on the sidewalk, and they asked the D.C. government for a permit to paint or chalk the message on the street or sidewalk. Well, after obtaining verbal consent from a police officer ahead of time, they, um, they referring to the Frederick Douglass Foundation and Students for Life of America, they asked police officers at a rally on the 1st of August, this is back in 2020, if they could chalk their message on the sidewalk. They refused When they proceeded to tag the sidewalk anyway, police arrested them. Now, there were no deaths. There was no property damage, but they were arrested. Well, here to talk with us a bit about this case is uh, John Bursch. He is the vice president of appellate advocacy with Alliance Defending Freedom on this D.C. double standard on public messaging. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, did I give a fair characterization of what happened uh, back in 2020 and kind of the crux of the challenge that's currently uh, uh, being uh, um, lodged against this uh, this practice? Yeah, that, that was an excellent description. I think you really nailed it. It's just almost hard to describe without seeing the pictures how much the District of Columbia was painted on, um, you know, scrawled all over mm-hmm. with respect to the Black Lives Matter protests. And then, then you just had this tiny little group putting chalk on the sidewalk, something that would have washed away in the next rain. And they were met by six police cars and all these police, uh, same officers who had been standing around watching or encouraging the other graffiti to take place. And, and the only reason, as far as anyone can tell, is because the mayor is pro-choice. So they weren't wielding weapons. They weren't destroying public property. No one was killed or injured. They were chalking a message that was, in part, what was already being endorsed by the mayor. You just put unborn in there, and it just it was more than the uh, the city could uh, or the district could tolerate. They wouldn't take that, and as we all know intuitively, the First Amendment's free speech clause prohibits that kind of viewpoint discrimination. The government's not allowed to pick and choose which sides of a public debate to weigh in on, and then silence the other side. And that's exactly what happened here. But when we filed the lawsuit on behalf of the Frederick Douglass Foundation and Students for Life of America, the defense was that the Black Lives Matter protests had happened spontaneously and the Students for Life and Frederick Douglass Foundation folks had asked for permission 
and therefore the situations weren't comparable. Uh, and so it didn't matter <laughs> that the city had taken different viewpoints. Uh, the, the, the asking for permission made all the difference. And the federal district court judge who heard that argument agreed with it and threw the case out, unbelievably. Wow. Uh, but we went up to the, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is one of our federal courts of appeals, and it, it has jurisdiction, obviously, over the federal district court for the district, and a panel that was mixed appointees from Republican and Democrat presidents agreed unanimously that the trial court had gotten it wrong, uh, that this was viewpoint discrimination, and they reinstated the case. It, it really is breathtaking. I will grant them that there there was a significant difference in the case. On the one hand, there was a respectful approach to government authorities requesting permission to take a small section of the city and, and uh, uh, pin a message that was consistent with or wasn't inconsistent with the Black Lives Matter sentiment. Um, and those who spontaneously decided to disrupt uh, civic so- civil society, um, they were not only allowed to do so, but the mayor embraced it and actively joined in the protest as well. Uh, it really is uh, is breathtaking. Yeah, it is. And yet we're seeing this type of viewpoint discrimination taking place all across the country, um, especially on college campuses. That's where uh, the bulk of our cases are where administrators will allow a liberal speaker to come in and speak on any topic they want without restriction. But if a conservative student group wants someone to come in and talk about uh, religion or capitalism or or things like that, then they're told that that's going to be controversial. And so they have to pay hundreds of dollars in security fees or costs that they can't afford or that speaker will be shunted off to a portion of campus where very few people can attend, or there'll be massive protests and security won't act to allow the speaker to present their message at all. Um, You see the same thing with speech zones and prior permissions. Um, It's really a terrible deterioration in what used to be the public marketplace of ideas in the United States, where everybody was allowed to talk about an issue from their perspective, people could listen to it and decide for themselves what was true. Now government officials and university officials are consistently picking the side that they agree with and then censoring the other side from speaking at all. Well, the lower court's decision has been reversed um, and the judge has affirmed that the district did discriminate on the base of uh, basis of viewpoint in the selective enforcement of its uh, defacement ordinance. What happens next? Well, a couple things could happen, um, and partly it's up to the district. They could choose to go to the en banc D.C. circuit. Uh, This was a panel of three judges that we had. They could get all of the judges on the D.C. circuit Mm -hmm. and ask them for a a different result, or they could ask the Supreme Court. But the the conduct is so outrageous and the constitutional violation so obvious. Our hope is that we'll just be able to settle the case, get them to agree that they won't do this again in the future, and everybody can move on their way. I mean, Frederick Douglass Foundation and Students for Life of America are not in the business of litigating cases in court. What they want to do is be able to speak about the importance of unborn human life and try to save as many babies as possible, particularly in the case of the Frederick Douglass Foundation, to make that message heard loud and clear within the Black community where a enormously disproportionate number of abortions take place, going all the way back to Margaret Sanger and her eugenics movement, which is the reason we have a disproportionate number of Planned Parenthood clinics in black neighborhoods. So that's the hope. And we'll just have to kind of wait and see. Yeah, I I wonder, too, if the fact that the uh, uh, the D.C. mayor, Bowser, a Democrat, um, directed government employees to spray paint words on the street, 35 foot long capital letters on a street. Um, 
if that was addressed at all, is it appropriate for a city official or whatever it is, the, the district official, um, to engage uh, public servants in that kind of activity while at the same time uh, forbidding others with a different message, although not necessarily conflicting message, uh, to have a, an opportunity to speak? Yeah, and, and the problem really was that she didn't allow the opposite view, or not even the opposite view, the complementary view, yeah. the one to save black unborn lives to speak, because governments speak all the time, and, and they can take views. Government officials can do that. Maybe it's a little questionable when you direct employees to support particular political or personal views that you might carry. But whenever that happens, the government needs to make that form available to everybody. So if they're going to have an ordinance that says you can't put graffiti on city streets or city buildings, then it needs to be enforced against everybody. Or if you allow one message to come in, then you have to let other messages come in, too. It's no different when the the government has a public park and they say that it's open for people to have rallies and concerts and things like that. And everything is going along fine. And then the pro-life group comes in to talk about their message of the importance of the dignity and preciousness of human life. And then they get excluded. Um, It's just that this one happened to take place on streets and sidewalks. Well, it really is um, breathtaking. And I'm I'm once again grateful for the courage for these organizations and uh, your organizations, Alliance Defending Freedom, to have the courage to confront this kind of injustice and hold these officials to account. And perhaps the next group, the next opportunity uh, will have a different outcome. I certainly hope so. Uh, What's great about this decision is it's one that will probably carry a lot of impact in other places, too. And so it's definitely a a win there in Washington, D.C. But other courts are are likely to respect this to make sure that not only pro-life views, but all views are respected uh, by government and that they're not picking and choosing one side or the other. And it's important for people to remember that no matter how they feel about life issues, no matter how they feel about religious issues, no matter how they feel about any political issue, this could happen to them, too. And so when the courts act to protect free speech and to prohibit government discrimination, it's beneficial to everybody. The whole society wins when we have rulings like this. Absolutely. John Bursch, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Take care. Again, John Bursch is the vice president of appellate advocacy with Alliance Defending Freedom. Up next, news and traffic and more of the day's headlines. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on 93.9 KPDQ Portland and 820 AM The Word in Seattle. Well, the fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals concluded on Wednesday that the abortion pill Mifepristone should remain on the market, but that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration went too far when it relaxed restrictions on the drug back in 2016 and made the pill available via mail in 2021. Well, an alliance versus Hippocratic Medicine versus Food and Drug Administration A three-judge panel said that the medical professionals who sued the FDA had likely waited too long to challenge the drug's original approval back in 2000 and also left in place the 2019 approval of the generic version of the drug. Yet the court stated that the FDA failed to properly scrutinize changes that increased access to mifepristone. Well, here to talk with us about that is Hugh Phillips. He's an attorney with Liberty Council on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling on chemical abortion pill mifepristone being mailed to those who want it. Hey, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Georgine. It's a pleasure to join you and to give your audience an update from the front lines 
uh, of the fight for life. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Now, this is a significant uh, ruling by the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. I think many of us were alarmed when the decision was made that you could just pop that thing in the mail and receive it and a person could engage in ending the life of an unborn child in utero in their home without having seen a medical professional. Take us back to where this kind of started, the the challenge to that part as well as the drug itself. Well, yes, Georgine, this this really is a a, a really incredible ruling by the Fifth Circuit. Now, mifepristone is one of the only drugs in the United States that is used to conduct chemical abortions. And, And chemical abortions constitute the vast majority of abortions in the United States today and was first approved by the FDA back in 2000, and then the generic version of it was, was approved in 2019. Uh, and these pro-life doctors filed suit to challenge the original approval of the drug uh, and also the FDA's ruling in 2021 that you, that you could send this drug by mail instead of getting it at a, at a doctor's office. And, and the Fifth Circuit's ruling um, that the FDA was actually unlawful in its decision to allow the sending of this drug by mail is really incredible. It's a win for life. It's a win for women because this drug is dangerous. Now, the FDA originally approved this drug back in 2000, mm-hmm. but yeah, we think the, the Fifth Circuit was wrong uh, in, in putting aside the issue of the original approval because the fact is the FDA didn't originally have the statutory approval to, to, uh, or to approve this drug. They have authority only to approve drugs that will treat illnesses. And to to approve this drug, they had to actually decide that pregnancy was Mm. an illness. And pregnancy is not an illness. Pregnancy is one of the most incredible things that will ever happen to a family. And for any organization, let alone a government agency, to say that pregnancy is an illness is just wrong. And the FDI didn't have the statutory authority to do so. No, go ahead. But even putting that issue aside, they definitely didn't have the authority um, to, in 2021, create the mail order decision and allow this drug to be sent across the United States via the Postal Service or telemedicine. Yeah. Let's just spend a moment looking at 2000 when they originally approved the drug for which they had no authority. Uh, The ruling by the the three-judge panel, does that mean this will not be or cannot be revisited or is there a possibility at some future point the lack of authority will be uh, considered by a court and that it could, in fact, be revoked at some point? What's the status, given what this uh, panel said? Well, fortunately, the alliance could, in fact, those pro-life doctors could, in fact, appeal that portion of the ruling to the United States Supreme Court. I hope they do. Uh, I think this is an issue that the Supreme Court needs to consider because the reopening doctrine is clear that when there's a clear violation of, re- of regulations on these types of issues, that a court can go back even 20 years later and say, no, the FDA didn't follow its own procedures. And I, and I hope that happens here because this drug is dangerous for women and it should never have been approved in the first place. So I hope the alliance does appeal that issue to the Supreme Court. But we know either way, um, this issue will very likely make it to the Supreme Court's Mm -hmm. docket next term because we know the FDA is going to appeal uh, the Fifth Circuit's decision on the mail order uh, aspect. Well, I think one of the important aspects of this having been heard in the court is just shining a light on the, the, the truth that this is not a safe drug that there are complications and what the outcome is when it's used in combination with another drug in ending a a pregnancy in utero. So I think shining a light on the fact that this isn't just a matter of putting a Band-Aid on a wound, this is a much more serious issue. At least I think that message uh, has to be considered when you look at this, uh, this case. 
Well, Georgine, that's right. And in fact, that's why the Fifth Circuit made its decision uh, on the FDA's 2021 order. The FDA in 2021, citing COVID as their rationale for, for getting rid of the safety precautions that have been put in place um, to prevent adverse effects of this drug to women, um, they, got, they got rid of those in 2021. Uh, and, and the court ruled that the FDA didn't even consider the safety of women when making that determination mm. in 2021. Uh, and, and the court cited the high number of adverse events to the surgical intervention, interventions, the infections, and even the deaths that resulted from this drug that the FDA should have considered, but they didn't. That was a violation of the FDA's own policies, and that has to stop. They cited the Comstock Act, which is what you're referring to, that the mail order decision violated that act. Can you explain what it is and um, how they managed for, you know, even for a short period of time, a couple of years, uh, to function outside the law? Well, that's correct. The Comstock Act is an 1873 piece of legislation passed by Congress, which which prohibited obscene materials and abortive fashions from being transported across state lines um, using Congress's interstate commerce authority. Um, and, and no one really knows why this wasn't challenged before, because it was clearly in violation of the Comstock Act the day the FDA made the decision up until today. And we're thankful for Judge Ho's concurrence where he noted that. Uh, we're hopeful the Supreme Court will take a look at that and actually apply that area of the law correctly. Too many, um, too many lower courts have not applied the Comstock Act when it, it was facially applicable in this case. So we hope the Supreme Court will look at the Comstock Act and say that applies. You cannot transport abortive fashions across state lines like the FDA said you could. Now, mifepristone is part of a two-drug protocol that's taken uh, with a a uh, misoprostol, if I uh, pronounce that correctly. It starves the baby to death in the womb over uh, one or two days, and then the the other drug induces labor, causing uh, cramping, contractions, and so on to end the abortion. Um, Are both drugs on trial or just the uh, the mifepristone? No, just the mifepristone. The misoprostol is, is a good drug. It's used normally. Uh, by doctors when delivering babies to allow the cervix to dilate even more. That's, that's a normal drug that's used. It's been proven to be safe by the FDA. The FDA has followed their normal procedures in approving that drug. Mifepristone is the abortive fashion here. This is the drug that the FDA did not follow their own procedures in approving and that the FDA never should have approved and definitely shouldn't allow to be sent by mail. I will note that the specific detail that the FDA is is just disregarding here is that their original approval of misopristone required that a doctor actually give the woman this this drug in their office to ensure that the woman was okay, that they weren't going to have any adverse events. And they actually required um, that the woman come back for two to three follow-up appointments in preceding days to ensure that she was okay. The FDA just threw those regulations out the window. It was a disregard of women's safety, and it never should have been allowed. We're, we're really grateful for the Fifth Circuit in, in, in making that decision. We hope the Supreme Court upholds it when it gets there. Was this uh, was the excuse, the pretext, uh, the, the pandemic, that women weren't able to see their doctors? What was the, uh, the motivating uh, factor um, that moved them forward in a direction that I have no doubt they knew violated the law in their own uh, their own rules. 
Well, that that was the excuse, but the the, the fact is they've never ended it. If that was the, the excuse when the pandemic ended, they should have gone back to the mm-hmm. in, in-person dispensing requirements, but they never did, and that shows you that they weren't actually concerned about the pandemic. They were just trying to increase access to this drug to push abortion as much as, they, as much as possible to the detriment of the baby and to the detriment of the health of women. This was a three-judge panel. What happens next? What should we expect? Well, next, uh, we're going to expect the FDA to appeal this ruling. Um, they're going to do so quickly. The Supreme Court will likely take it up quickly, and we will almost assuredly see this on the Supreme Court's docket for the next term. So I would say within a year, we'll see a decision from the, from the Supreme Court on this, we're really hopeful that, that, that they will accept the Fifth Circuit's decision and end the mail-order abortion regime and hopefully even go further uh, and rule that mifepristone never should have been approved by the FDA, FDA in the first place. Hugh Phillips, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Georgine. God Appreciate bless. it. Again, Hugh Phillips, attorney with Liberty Council. Up next, news and traffic and more of the day's headlines. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a conservative legal nonprofit led by Stephen Miller is suing Target on behalf of one of the company's investors, saying it should have anticipated public backlash to their LGBTQ pride displays in June. America First Legal, found by a, founded by Miller, a former senior advisor to former President Trump, claims the company misrepresented the adequacy of the um, risk monitoring after its uh, Pride Month campaign led employee to employee harassment. And in the wake of Trump's fourth indictment, his poll numbers surged. It's something of a mystery. In the aftermath of a 41-count indictment being handed down by Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis, the former president has made new headway in the 2024 race against President Joe Biden, despite announcing his reelection bid in April. Biden hasn't uh, been on the campaign trail, spent the past two weeks on the beach in Delaware. I guess he's entitled to something of a break. But Trump... Uh, for president, 45 percent. Biden, 44.9 percent. Um, 54.8 percent on the uh, GOP side. DeSantis at 14.6. Ramaswamy at 6.1. Uh, Biden's job approval rating down 13.4 percent uh, with 40.8 percent disapproval, 54.2 percent. That's going to be an interesting Season. Also, the president announced he's planning to visit Hawaii. He's traveling there next week to meet with first responders and tour damage from the catastrophic wildfires on the island as the death toll continues to rise. At least 106 deaths have been confirmed as of Wednesday morning, but officials still anticipate the number will climb rather dramatically. Well, videos put scrutiny on uh, downed power lines as the possible cause of the deadly Maui wildfires. I've seen those videos and they are pretty condemning. The president is touting his record on inflation as Americans spend hundreds more per month. And the White House is uh, touting taxes over spending cuts for deficit reduction while hitting the GOP. Global wealth dropped for the first time since 2008 and homelessness rose 11 percent in just one year as the pandemic spending is fading. A Maryland school district will be allowed to keep a child's gender transition from his or her parents, a court rules, and 6.5 million students were chronically absent after the pandemic, according to a new study. Who's responsible? I mean, is the state, are they raising the kids? Is the parents? Now, my guess is the parents will be responsible for that. The state will take no responsibility unless, of course, we're talking about gender issues, in which case parents are 
incompetence. Hurricane Hillary continues to rapidly intensify and has strengthened into a Category 2 storm that may have increased uh, since we've been in studio. And forecasters said that the hurricane's path means the storm could bring significant impacts to Southern California and the Southwest by the end of the week and into the first part of next week. The president shouted during a speech challenging anyone to name one thing the United States set out to accomplish and failed. It's a rhetorical question. Please don't yell at your radio. Blaze Media founder Glenn Beck says Apple removed his podcast from iTunes without warning. And AOC, the representative, owed up to $50,000 in student loans while leading calls for debt cancellation. A bit of a conflict of interest. Social Security checks are on track to be slashed in less than a decade. And the Biden administration told 9-11 families that the attack mastermind and four others could be spared the death penalty. The Biden administration is investigating Vanderbilt University over the release of transgender clinic patient records and pro-abortion attacks on pro-lifers have resulted in little to no consequence from D.C. authorities. Well, on this day in history, 1863, federal batteries and ships began bombarding Fort Sumter in Charleston in the harbor during the Civil War. But the Confederates managed to hold on despite several days of pounding. 1978, the first successful transatlantic balloon flight ends as Maxie Anderson, Ben Abruzzo, and Larry Newman land their double eagle, the second, outside Paris. 1982, the first commercially produced compact discs, a recording of ABBA's The Visitors, are pressed at the Phillips factory in Hanover, West Germany. And 1985, more than 1,400 meat packers walk off the job at a Hormel and Company. Uh, their main plant in Austin, Minnesota, in a bitter strike that lasted just over a year. 1987, Rudolf Hess, the last member of Adolf Hitler's inner circle, died in Spandau prison at age 93. It was an apparent suicide. 1996, the Reform Party announces Ross Perot has been selected to be its first ever presidential nominee, opting for a third party founder over challenger Richard Lamb. 1998, President Bill Clinton, he gives grand jury testimony via closed circuit television from the White House concerning his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. He then delivers a TV address in which he denies previously committing perjury, admits his relationship with Lewinsky was wrong and criticizes Kenneth Starr for his investigation. 1999, more than 17,000 people are killed when a magnitude 7.4 earthquake strikes Turkey. 17,000. 2000, President Barack Obama addressing the veterans of foreign wars in Phoenix chastises the defense industry and Congress for wasting tax dollars with doctrine and weapons better suited to fighting the Soviets on the plains of Europe than insurgents in the rugged terrain of Afghanistan. 2014, U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder, he holds a federal medical examiner to perform another autopsy on the remains of Michael Brown, a black Missouri teenager whose fatal shooting by a white police officer spurred violent protests and national debate. Well, we are out of time for our Salem, our Seattle listeners. We'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will join us. Have a great night. Those of you here in the Portland area, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, we know from Scripture that in this life we will know tribulation. Well, that certainly is the case for many believers in many parts of the world. We look at the challenges we face, and in many cases they pale in comparison to what Christians in other parts of the world face, we at least have the freedom of religion here, even though it's not uh, freedom to practice one's faith um, 
without hindrance. But a Christian community in Pakistan found itself under attack on Wednesday as a Muslim mob reportedly vandalized churches, torched homes, burned Bibles after two Christians were accused of blasphemy, which, as you probably know, can be very broadly defined. An unflattering look can be sufficient. At least two churches were vandalized. One was burned in Jaranwala. It's a largely Christian area. In Faisalabad, it's a district in eastern Pakistan, in addition to the mob armed with rocks and sticks, attacking places of worship, at least one home was demolished, while several others were vandalized, though some reports say more churches were damaged. Many Christians were forced to flee their homes for safety. The bishop there said, we bishops, priests and lay people are deeply pained and distressed at the Jaranwala incident at the Faisalabad district in Pakistan. A church building is being burnt as I type this message. Bibles have been desecrated and Christians have been tortured and harassed, having been falsely accused of violating the Holy Quran. We cry out for justice and action from law enforcement and those who dispense justice and the safety of all citizens to intervene immediately and assure us that our lives are valuable in our own homeland that has just celebrated independence and freedom. Remember to pray for the persecuted church as if you yourself are being persecuted. Meanwhile, Minnesota residents claim their city is transformed into a garbage can due to crime. It's not just the residents in Minneapolis who are growing upset over the high crime rate. During a town hall meeting in St. Paul, community members there in the lower town neighborhoods say crime has gotten out of control there, too. People at the meeting said the city has become a garbage can, and that's a quote, and unsafe. One man said he's considering obtaining a concealed carry permit for his safety. The majority of speakers said constant open drug use, public lewdness, burglaries and sexual assault have created an environment of anxiety and apprehension. Residents there in St. Paul, Minnesota, rather, say rampant crime has turned the Democrat-run city into a garbage can. It's been allowed to become like that, and it's sad and it's pathetic. I feel like getting a license to carry because of my fear. That's a resident in St. Paul. Meanwhile, President Biden is coaching uh, colleges, the Supreme Court decision aside, the Biden administration, as it seeks to undermine the recent ruling ending discriminatory affirmative action in college admissions. The president's education and justice departments have issued new guidelines to college and universities on how they can effectively and legally continue to the practice of race based admissions. Education Secretary Miguel Cordona, he justified the administration's underhanded effort by asserting without evidence that ending affirmative action will result in bad things. Fewer students of color applied. Fewer students of color were admitted. He predicted we cannot afford that kind of backpedaling on the national scale. In other words, uh, minority students can't gain admission through other means, merit, academic prowess. It only uh, will happen under affirmative action. The Biden administration's workaround is to encourage schools that can no longer consider any racial demographic data when considering an applicant for admission to consider how race may have impacted an applicant's life. Perhaps broadly put, how events uh, would impact an applicant's life. In other words, coach prospective students to highlight their own racial identities when applying. It's Harvard's new tack. Meanwhile, former President Obama's brother endorsed Donald Trump again. Back in 2016, Barack Obama's half and full black brother, Malik Obama, famously endorsed Donald Trump for president. Well, Malik is back at it again, releasing a video endorsing Trump for president uh, on X. 
wearing a red hat emblazoned with the message. Well, I won't repeat the message. It's profane. Uh, Malik explains, I wore the hat because, you know, sloppy Joe, he's not a fan of mine. I'm not a Democrat. I'm a Republican, end quote. Malik uh, not only expressed his objection to Biden, but he also weighed in on his brother, calling him a big disappointment and not the same person that he used to uh, be when they were together. In fact, he said, it seems like once he became a big shot, it got to his head and now he thinks that he's God. Now, keep in mind, this is one brother speaking about another. YouTube's new censorship under the guise of preventing the spread of medical misinformation. YouTube on Tuesday announced its latest censorship campaign, issuing changes to its ever-evolving community guidelines. The Google-owned social media platform claimed to have learned critical lessons from the COVID pandemic. Sadly, probably not the right ones. We're taking what we've learned so far about the most effective ways to tackle medical misinformation to simply simplify our approach for creators, viewers and partners. YouTube further explained it means uh, for deciding what it uh, will censor to determine if a condition, treatment or substance is in scope of our medical misinformation policies. We'll evaluate whether it's associated with a health public uh, or rather a high public health risk. Publicly available guidance from health authorities around the world and whether it's generally prone to misinformation, end quote. In other words, YouTube will engage in the tyranny of the experts to justify censoring information it does not want shared or doesn't like. No debate or free thinking allowed. Meanwhile, not a shred of concern or commitment to upholding the principle of free speech whatsoever. But, of course, we're not surprised. Well, Trump's Georgia trial is scheduled for the eve of Super Tuesday. March the 4th, 2024 is the uh, requested date for the trial of Donald Trump in Fulton County, Georgia. That date just happens to be the day before Super Tuesday, when the largest number of states hold their presidential primaries. While some contend this move is designed to force Trump off the campaign trail at a pivotal moment, strategically, this actually plays in his favor, others predict, making him front and center news as voters go to the polls. But of course, for all the wrong reasons. Meanwhile, the question of whether Trump will show up to the first GOP primary debate is still up in the air. If he does decide to forego it, he can steal the uh, limelight by scheduling his Georgia jailhouse booking to coincide with the debate. Hmm. Well, apparently, uh, New York Governor Kathy Hochul is none too keen on New York City Mayor Eric Adams' handling of the increasing numbers of illegal aliens moving into the Big Apple. In a 12-page letter sent from the Democrat governor's lawyer to the Democrat mayor's office, Hochul indirectly chastised Adams' leadership, arguing the city can and should do more to act in a proactive and collaborative manner with the state. The letter further noted that the state has committed $1.5 billion to help with the migrant crisis. The city did not prioritize this critical effort, the letter says. Had the city done so, it's likely that thousands more migrants would be able to work today. When questioned about the letter's criticism, Hochul claimed that she and Adams weren't at odds, but she did admit it is true that uh, they didn't accept some of the help we offered, end quote. Well, New York City Deputy Mayor Fabian Levy, he acknowledged the letter saying we're encouraged to see our partners in Albany uh, want to to deeply engage on this crisis and take a more proactive role in their response because this is such a significant crisis. We need more. Well, North Carolina Democrat Governor Roy Cooper's veto of a bill banning gender bending treatments on children and minors has been 
overridden by the Republican-led legislature. The law bars medical professionals in the Tar Heel state from providing puberty-blocking hormones and drugs, as well as bans gender mutilation surgeries on minors. Meanwhile, on the other end of the country, America First Legal brought a lawsuit against Washington Democrat Governor Jay Inslee to stop the enforcement of a law he signed in May, Senate Bill 5599, that allows children to undergo gender-bending treatments, including gender mutilation surgeries without need parental consent. Under the new law, not only do children not need parental consent, but there is no requirement that parents be notified of their child undergoing gender treatment. A former FBI Russiagate agent has pled guilty to money laundering for a Russian. The former FBI special agent Charles McGonigal, who was a key individual in the Russiagate investigation, has pled guilty to his involvement in money laundering for a Russian oligarch. According to Matthew Olson, Assistant Attorney General of the Justice Department's National Security Division, McGonagall, by his own admission, betrayed his oath and actively concealed his illicit work at the bidding of a sanctioned Russian oligarch. Given the lie that the Russian hoax was, it comes as little surprise that McGonagall would be involved in this one. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. There's lots to talk about, many more headlines that we weren't able to cover, but I did want to cover this one. You recall the abducted American missionary. Well, she says Elevation Worship, the song, uh, one of their songs, was her battle cry while in captivity. So she's worshiping her way through what is perhaps the most challenging and um, serious event of her life and that of her daughters. Well, the American nurse who was kidnapped in Haiti, she was released last week, says that one worship song in particular had become her battle cry after she and her daughter were abducted in late July. Her name is Alex Dorsonville and her daughter. They were set free last week after roughly two weeks of being held captive following their July 27th abduction from the campus of the El Rio Haiti Christian Education Ministry near Port-au-Prince. Well, El Roy Haiti, which uh, Dorsonville's husband founded, came forward on Thursday reporting that the two were not harmed and are in healthy condition. Praise God for that. I am completely humbled by the outpouring of support and prayer for myself and my sweet baby, both during and following our time in captivity. Alex said in a statement on the Elroy Haiti website, God was so very present in the fire with us. And I pray that when I find the words to tell our story, that the mighty name of Jesus may be glorified and many people will come to know his love. Thank you all from the depths of my heart for your love. End quote. Well, during the most challenging moments of her time in captivity, she says she had found comfort in the song Sea of Victory by the North Carolina-based Elevation Worship. I'm going to see a victory is the main line. There's a part that says you take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good, she said. And that is what she is already doing and will continue to do, end quote. Dorsonville married the founder of Elroy Haiti in 2021. She worked as a school nurse with the organization starting in 2020. As a devout Christian, she spent time traveling to Haiti starting in 2010 and fell in love with the country and its people. During her captivity, the ministry praised her as the kind of person who lives a life following in the footsteps of Jesus. The Associated Press reported that during the abduction, she was taking care of the needs of patients in a tiny brick clinic. 
Suddenly, witnesses claim the clinic was swarmed by armed men and she was kidnapped. Haiti has suffered from increased violence, kidnapping and gang crimes as gang presence has increased in the country following the 21 uh, 2021 assassination of the president, even though it is believed that as much as a million dollar ransom was sought by the gunman in Dorsonville's uh, case, reports are unclear if a ransom was actually paid for her release. The U.S. Department of State that worked with Haitian counterparts to secure uh, her release, that and, uh, and her daughters, didn't confirm if a ransom was paid. We have no greater priority than the safety and security of U.S. citizens overseas the agency stated, as you can imagine, these individuals have been through a very difficult ordeal, both physically and mentally. Elroy Haiti wrote that the release of their founder's wife and his daughter was a display of just how faithful God can be when powerful prayers are sent his way. Well, the truth is, whether or not prayers are lifted, God is faithful. And we know that she was praying as um, as well. We are so thankful for everyone who joined us in prayer and supported us during this crisis. Elroy is a Hebrew name of God, of uh, the God of the Bible. That means the God who sees. It is with that vision that we now rest upon God's truth that in his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support and strengthen you. And he will place you on a firm foundation, the ministry stated, referencing 1 Peter 5.10. You take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good. And that's what uh, he's already done in this case. Well, Elroy uh, wrote that the release of their founder's wife and his daughter was a display of uh, just how faithful God is. We praise him that he has proven himself faithful as he restores, supports, and strengthens Alex, the family, the ministry, and Haiti, and the community that Alex has impacted and continues to impact with her ministry in Haiti. Well, as the uh, as was reported, the Kansas City-based, faith-based global security community, Concilium, it worked with the U.S. State Department and other U.S. law enforcement officials to secure Uh, Her release. Well, on the same day of the kidnapping, the U.S. State Department issued a level four travel advisory that urged Americans in the country to leave as soon as possible. It's not clear if that was uh, in response to her kidnapping or it was prior to her having been kidnapped. In any case, she has since been released and we are grateful for that. Jack Devine invoked the uh, Title of a uh, an epic tome, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, was written in 1776, and it uh, focuses on the hard reality that greatness never lasts forever. Whether it's the Roman Empire, the New York Yankees, the United Kingdom, and even our near-perfect USA, the decline and fall of American civility was the subject of a recent article in which he points out that bit by bit, seemingly indestructible empires crumble, and only in retrospect does it become clear how and why that happened. We're seeing it now right here in the United States, even if we prefer to look away. Of course, it's not all gloom and doom. Certainly ours is a nation with much to celebrate, unrivaled prosperity, peace, liberty, and opportunity. But at the same time, the underlying fabric of our society, Americans' legendary ability to live in harmony, seems to be coming apart at the seams. More and more, we're becoming a nation of angry, resentful, and fearful inhabitants. We now keep our doors locked physically and emotionally. The deterioration of civility in America has been gradual but cumulative. Maybe that's why we older Americans sense, sense it so keenly. 
The indicators are too numerous to mention, but a few come to mind. The habitability of our great cities. 55 years ago, uh, cities were much different than they are today. Much of downtown San Francisco, for example, is now a, a hellscape of homeless encampments, drugs, violence, filth, and stench. It's not just San Francisco. Cities across the country are becoming less habitable. New York City subway system, the all-too-frequent episodes of violence in those unprotected underground spaces now far outweigh the subway system's convenience and perhaps once intrigue. Public discourse, our everyday language, has become harsh, angry, and laced with profanity. The F-word, once the sole province of sailors, is now an all-purpose noun, adjective, adverb used casually in any company. And although our nation has made enormous progress in erasing discrimination based on color, creed, or sexual orientation, our elected politicians still find value in reminding Americans of our differences and using those differences to arouse resentment and create political wedge issues. And then there's lifestyle. The time-honored and well-proven concept of a nuclear family is falling by the wayside. Marriage rates are down. Divorces are up. The single-parent household abounds. Meanwhile, mental health problems are growing issues. Clinical depression is more prevalent. Murders and suicides are at an all-time high. Well, fast forward to our 21st century best and brightest college graduates. Having borrowed tens of thousands of dollars to cover their tuition costs, they happily vote for politicians who promise to forgive those intolerably burdensome loans. Do commitments today mean nothing? Well, there's much that could be said. So what's the point? Is there any chance of riding the ship? Well, times change, of course, and we must change with them. But as citizens, we must never lose sight of what's happening in our great country. And we cannot let politicians and their parties tell us what and is and what is not acceptable. In short, regardless of age, embrace your inner old foginess, your traditional values, your rejection of the woke, Ignore media and ignore political party pronouncements. You know what's right. Live that way. Vote that way. Cultivate a powerful prayer life. And let's see if we can turn this ship of state around. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.